evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Claudia Shambaugh advising all listeners that you're not necessarily hearing the views of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. Ask a Leader Edition coming up next. Stay with us. I know what you're thinking. Shambhala just sounds a little bit too littered with Shambhala, but that's that's just the way it works. Today, we are on Ask a Leader. We're going to do something very special with a round table covering the um, second inauguration of Barack Obama. It's a big day and a big week, but before we did that, we were celebrating and honoring Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And also today, folks, is the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Surely you've already seen for yourself and heard many a talking head interpret what you saw yesterday and today we're going to hear from our very own faculty with their impressions of the messages and directions with the body politic. So um, don't go away, we're going to be right back. Just a few more jingles to give everybody a chance to settle into the interview. Okay, everybody, my three guests for the full hour to take stock of President Obama's second inauguration are Professors Catherine Tate, Jennifer Jackson, and Laura O'Connor. First, Jen, Virginia Jackson is the Chair in Rhetoric and Communication at UCI School of the Humanities. Her PhD is in Comparative Literature from Princeton and has recently joined UCI from her previous appointment at Tufts University. Her work considers Emily Dickinson, Longfellow, and even who does read poetry. Then we have Ms. Catherine Tate. She's here with me in Studio 8. She's a professor of political science at UCI. She received her uh, PhD. I'm going to check it out because I was just taking it uh, there at the University of Michigan in political science. And uh, then my... um, and are her, her courses, I'm going to tell you. She's um, already in, into the winter course. She's teaching public opinion research and introduction to race and ethnicity in political science in the spring. For those of you who haven't filled that out in your five-year plan, she's teaching African-American policy, political course, and a graduate seminar on pu- uh, public opinion research. Also with us is professor of English and a native of Ireland. And keep that in mind, folks, when we're looking at uh, our piece on the poem that was delivered yesterday and uh, a, a um, multinational um, sort of a, a immigrant expat sort of sensibilities. Um, Laura O'Connor, now at UCR for 16 years, she's received her PhD at Columbia University and her interests include 20th century poetry in English, Irish literary and cultural studies, post-colonial issues in Anglophone literature, Anglo-American modernism, and with the translation theory, which will also come in handy with some of our discussion here today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Catherine Tate, Virginia Jackson, and Laura O'Connor. Everybody present? Yes, thanks. Yes, thanks for inviting us. And Laura, you're there too? I'm here too. Okay, good. Well, first, I just couldn't resist uh, for us all to look at the bridge of time in the selections of contributions to the inauguration, starting with the 79-year-old Merle Evers Williams and her invoking the spirit of our ancestors. As she said, thankful that their living is not in vain. And she referred, 
I mean, we're thinking of the civil rights movement. She also sweeps our minds to, toward the four-mile-away Arlington Cemetery site where, the, as she said, the spirit infuses our being. And she says, we are strong, fierce in our strength. Let's start with uh, Jenny. Um, your thoughts about the flow, uh, the temporal flow of these selections at yesterday's inauguration. Oh, well, that's actually a great question. I was actually thinking more of the um, temporality of the selections themselves rather than the ages of the people. Exactly. All the above. Who gave them. I mean, obviously it was quite moving to see Morley Evers-Williams there. Just her person, of course, is historical. Um, And, uh, but, you know, it was interesting. Her address, the prayer, the, the form of the address of the prayer is, of course, an address to God, but obviously it's a it's an historical form of public address, and she ended with a with a gospel hymn that is the invocation um, of a gospel hymn, and the um, the you know then uh, we moved to the battle hymn of the Republic, a 19th century first a poem a form a form of um, public address uh, in the uh, second year of the Civil War in 1862. And then through these various uh, moments in really 19th century um, public address in poetry until, you know, Beyoncé's incredible rendition <laughs> of the Star-Spangled Banner, which is, you know, was, was Francis F- Scott Key's poem for the 1812, um, the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was set to the, to the tune of the Anacreontic drinking song, which was a kind British drinking and whoring song, um, which is actually, so it's quite an amazing span of historical forms of public address. We could say 100% for all of those, uh, for all the overuse of percentages over the last two and a half years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, Laura, did you want to also add to that with your uh, literary um, training? <laughs> well, I, um, I found um, Marley Evans Williams' uh, prayer slash poem address um, incredibly moving I, I um, uh, and uh, very very authoritative uh, it, it reminded me of just how important um, you know just how strong that contribution from the civil rights movement has been to um, public discourse and uh, rhetoric um, in the states in ways that gets played out um, throughout the world exactly um, I Dublin mean, I memorized um, some speeches as a young kid in Ireland, yes. um, Lincoln and uh, so on. And I think uh, people worldwide would very would have related very strongly to that um, as well. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you might think that some of the historical reference would be lost um, elsewhere or would be more meaningful within the nation, but I don't think that's true. Um, and she just... Um, had such incredible um, poise and, um, you know, I mean, it was very beautiful, um, her delivery of it. So I found that um, wonderful, um, you know, because it sort of went beyond uh, just the conventionalism of um, making certain kinds of, um, you know, formal ritualistic sayings. Mm. Um very she good. put her heart and soul into it, and, and that was good to see. And Ka- here, Catherine Tate, have you something to say about this? 
Well, yes, I, I think that the commentary right now is focusing on the sort of ideological um, nature of the uh, president's um, speech. But the civil rights platform that was uh, included Lincoln as well as MLK, uh, I think, was a new feature uh, in the United mm -hmm. States that is really remarkable. If we weren't living in such partisan times, I think people would have walked away uh, with, I think, a sure sense of what America stands for, uh, what the history uh, really looked like. Remember, this is very difficult uh, for Americans uh, to do, so that when the 112th Congress convened, they wanted to read from the Constitution, but they didn't want to read the slave provisions of the Constitution. And so, um, and, and so to get up there and put uh, civil rights um, activists uh, whose husband had been murdered mm -hmm. uh, viciously um, on the platform to, you know, evoke Martin Luther King, um, who had been a controversial figure during that era. Um, with, all, with all branches of the government. With all branches of the government there, and to do it unapologetically and, and for, forcefully, I think, is a new thing that we'll look back upon and, and, and I think be proud of. So this is just, I think, something that we should be emphasizing more than the sort of partisan tone or the ideological tone that um, was also present um, in his address. Mm -hmm. And so would uh, anyone let then like to pick up uh, the structure then of the that uh, what um, Ms. Evers Williams set up and then eventually for uh, President Obama to to lay out uh, the t or, and to present uh, the, his points and the tact that he did, whether, um, I mean, all three of you could see, was, was there sort of a, a very explicit structure so that those points, could, it could be a build-up to the points and the content of, of President Obama's inaugural address. Anyone want to take that up? Well, I think um, Catherine, uh, gay take. rights activists um, are really um, were really heartened by this um, speech as well. That they're included in this um, history and the language of struggle um, is again um, something that uh, is historic. And so, you know, this the novelty of having an African American president. Um, there's been quite a debate over whether it's just a symbol, a symbol that can be misrepresented and is phony, uh, that the United States is not post-racial. I think uh, we're in an era where it's, it's not post-racial, but it's certainly not, um, you know, rooted and in, in stuck in the past. Um, we've moved past something, uh, and I think including uh, the, the, these new rights for gays and lesbians is part of a national discourse. Um, is important and uh, again will be historic well I, yes I, sorry go ahead i i just wanted to agree with Catherine tate and also say that i think that the um the the movement of the program itself as we were discussing earlier really emphasized the restlessness of you know these shifts in various forms of public address how to you know, the, the strength of the civil rights platform and the strength of the historical moment was, in a sense, complemented by these shifts in, you know, how do we address this public and who is addressing what public? Yes, that this this is uh, Virginia Jackson speaking there. So I'm going to make sure everybody knows as we have we move from one voice to the next. Did you, Laura? Did you want to uh, add on to that or or t tack on or or? No, I'll pass. 
Okay, that's fine. Well, um, so we're saying you've already talked about it uh, to the extent um, there was a different feel. Uh, there was more content to soak up um, as others were um, weighing in. Uh, and Catherine's talking about the sort of the ideological dissection afterward, but um, but the content did. What did you think? The three of you. Uh, we'll start with Laura. Did you think that the content overall? Um, what 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 did you take away from the the content um, in in a general form versus what other inaugurations have been trying to do? Um, well, it was uh, plain. Um, there was something a kind of plainness about it that I welcomed. Um, I mean, obviously, a second inauguration is, you know, going to be a much more low-key affair. I think that's actually quite appropriate than a first, where, um, you know, there was a sense of the miracle has happened. Um, uh, and so that difference um, was registering, um, and I thought that was a good thing. I don't um, think you should sort of, that's just the way things are. Um, I mean, the, the highlights for me were um, Miss Edgar's Evans speech. I loved Beyonce's um, re uh, rendition of the anthem. I could have done without the um, what to me is always "God Save Our Queen." I know it's not. Oh yes. <laughs> as if I, I mean, I don't like that song as a song, and it just doesn't really work, and um, so on. So that I would have that from the program if I were in charge of things. Appreciate the Irish uh, contribution <laughs> there, yes. And um, and I also very much liked uh, Richard Blanco's um, poem and his rendition of it. He, and I that's going to be, Laura, before you... With him. Before um, you I didn't know his work, but I thought he did a very good job. Well, we're going to... That's a whole, like a whole large section of what we're okay. going to be talking about today, um, so... And then for um, Obama's speech, um, I, I liked it. Uh... I suppose there was a sense in which, um, I'd say, I mean, there were several aspects I, I liked about it. I did, I, I did in many ways like the kind of pitch towards the ordinary um, and the way he, um, you know, honored different um, groups. Um, and I liked his demeanor. Um, so I guess my my reservation around it was perhaps, um, you know, I read something last week about um, one of the op-ed pieces in, um, I think it was in the Los Angeles Times, about how the uh, funding for this event wasn't been... Um, uh, a disclosure? or closed, yeah. Okay. And that bothered me for a start, but it also sort of set me thinking on... I would have liked to say some more creativity about um, how the ordinary public got involved, say, even at a local level like this, this kind of an event, you know, where you're calling somebody who was there, you know, sort of you think of it nationwide, um, that, that there would have been some way of um, being creative about invitations as opposed to sort of making it more of a, a Washington affair, and that the, those people who kind of won lotteries or whatever would kind of go back into their communities and 
tell us their experience. Well, maybe that's yet to come then, Laura, and yeah. you can present that challenge uh, for all, I don't know how, the listening public uh, on this program, but, you know, yeah. amongst your students and your circles and that kind of thing, I think that's a great point uh, because, I mean, the community organizer certainly, you know, he's been mining our data for like the last eight and a half, nine years, so um, so let's decentralize again and celebrate and take stock of, of the inaugural message. I think that's a great idea. Does anybody want to uh, tack on to that one? Because I, we are going to talk point by point about the inaugural address itself, but just I'm still talking in general uh, content. But Catherine, did you want to respond to what Laura was saying about how how this can be celebrated in a in a broader, more public, more creative way? I think that the speech was, um, you know, pitched at a sort of unrealistic level, and so you know, I do think that you know, uh, for a president who's started out, you know, being portrayed as a pragmatist. This was a really an idealistic speech mm-hmm. where he's talking about how America can't turn its back on, on the poor and um, we need to help everyone and this is a virtue of the United States and it's our, our va- represents our values. I think that there is a, a real um, earnest debate uh, in this country and there's economic trends that... Um, are ominous still concerning you know the rising gap between the wealthy and the poor and and there's I think strong sentiment that um, the United uh, among Americans uh, who really don't want to um, shoulder additional burdens and 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 make sure that say the next generation of 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 Americans are you know, situated uh, in 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 a w- position that allow them to become prosperous and 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 well. So I think, um, I think that's something that you know it's going to he'll have to wrestle with for the next four years. And he didn't give us any sense of how he was going to do that. Um, it's almost as if he could pull the rug out from underneath the people who really felt warmed by his. Um, you know, uh, strong um, um, embrace of this uh, liberal agenda. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't. I don't think that that his um, presidency, and I don't think the situation that we're in today, um, gives us much to to really think that these things are going to be achievable in the next four years. I think there's still more hardships ahead of for the United States. Before I, I have something to say about that, I want. For uh, Virginia, to, um, for for Jennifer, to Virginia. I'm sorry, for Virginia <laughs> to add um, to that, if you'd like. Well, I just want to, I, I think, agree with both, and also say that I do agree with Catherine Tate that the that the speech was idealistic. Um, I think that it was uh, idealistic. It was also short. We should say, um, in relation to you know, the history of inauguration speeches. And I think it was idealistic in this kind of wonderful way that depended upon, in a way that, you know, the fact that it was the most stable public address in the entire program. Like, usually the poems and the anthems are used to frame the um, the speech ceremonially. And what I was trying to say before about mm-hmm. the poems and the anthems is I think they had this kind of all very strange orientations toward public address itself, and in fact the speech was the most ambitious form of public address in the program. 
Indeed. Um, and that it began in by rooting itself in an in an historic moment that is and in the and in the history of that day and the you know the historic presence of this president. Excellent that you say it that way. And I'd like to add my uh, thought that I saw that as an op- an opportunity for uh, a president who is maybe acknowledging that the the center of American political gravity was so moved to the to the right that it was incumbent of a president with a, any kind of a progressive kind of a, a agenda, sensibility, whatever, to push way back to the, another direction in terms mm-hmm. of of the of a sweeping kind of vision. And that uh, so uh, you know it's it's a it was sort of a matter of of math and geometry to uh, to right the the tack uh, mm-hmm. of the ship. I mean, correct the tack. It's been on the right there. So um, I, I think that I was wondering if that wasn't some sort of a purpose there in, in invoking it all. But and we'll, 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 folks, we're going to break down piece by piece of the address. Um, but this is meant to be sort of a general discussion um, of the uh, the overall um, content of the the inaugural uh, presentations yesterday. Well, um, I well, why don't we, as we're going from one speaker to the next? I would like there was a major send up of Richard Blanco's uh, <laughs> contribution. We're all learning a bit about his background, his Cuban American background, and I say that advisedly because uh, he. Uh, I guess he was conceived there. He was raised in Spain and put together. He uh, largely um, he started out in Spain and then um, more or less was reared in Miami in the United States. So uh, he has that background. I've heard much to s- some to say about his engineering training, which was his first career. And maybe uh, our humanities uh, experts here and, and Catherine uh, with political science too can address. Uh, there was much. There was some talk about how. Richard Blanco's engineering was a feature of how he puts his poetry together. So, Laura O'Connor, could perhaps you uh, address what you saw in what um, your impressions, what you, how you saw him putting together his point? I guess the um, the piece that uh, I heard on one coverage I was following yesterday, the piece about the tattoo over the nipple, that poem was not. Uh, that was d- rejected by the inaugural committee, but we heard one day. So, uh, Laura O'Connor, could you tell us what you had to say about the um, how it was put together, what you took from um, special aspects of the poem? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, he won today. He sort of stressed one and under one sky. So that that was a kind of, I suppose, an umbrella. Um, type metaphor that I thought worked well, actually, and um, you could see that as uh, him sort of setting up his big tent or something, you know, in, mm-hmm. in engineering terms. Um, I mean, for somebody like me, you know, who work like working in poetry, I sort of read Whitman into this. Okay. Um, and it's hard, I think it would be hard for any poet um, giving an address like that not to have Whitman's um, voice, even that sense of trying to kind of cover the country, um, say his, uh, when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed. So, you know, that was one present, but presence in the poem. But what I liked about it was that it was actually quite a subdued presence. It was unmistakable, but I didn't feel he was in any sense um, 
kind of just rewriting um, a Whitmanian poem for the current moment. Um, I liked... Uh, I liked the kind of paragraphing of it, actually, um, and this a sense of each, each section um, grounding. He actually uses you know, the word our ground, our ground. But he, he kind of went back to square one several times, um, and that made it very easy to hear. I mean, I listened to it rather than um, read it, and I think how you guess a poem as one listening, um, it's a very different type of poem. I, I experienced it as an occasional poem that just seemed to work very well on the occasion. I don't think it's necessarily going to be... Um, I mean, I think perhaps part of it could be a poem that would stay with you, but I don't think, you know, to me it was still an occasional poem. Um, and I, I, li- I liked the 20 empty desks, you know. I, oh. um, he did sort of have his surprises in there. Um, I liked the the um, seriousness with which he took the task. Um, I, I felt he, um, you know, without knowing him at all or anything about him, he came across as a poet with a strong ethos who was speaking as a poet in, um, but in a very kind of public um, speech way. So, you know, the poem is in some ways, um, I mean, I guess for both both of those um, interventions, both the, the invocation or the prayer was part poem, <laughs> yes. and the um, poem was part speech, and I actually liked the hybridity of both. Um, I thought it worked in both instances. Um, and I liked poetry figuring in that way um, instead of being kind of cordoned off as, um, and now we'll have our poem because that's expected. Um, so uh, in terms of the engineering, I think. Um, well, I, I think you did mention that about the uh, paragraphing, sort yeah. of how that was built uh, Built. And the movement, you and know, the, ease the of e- uh, yellow it. pencil. I like the yellow pencil buses. Yes. <laughs> so uh, some of the images um, there, you did have a sense of um, a, a kind of bird's eye view or, um, you know, a broad sweep, but yet that had a kind of localizing feel to it. Um, uh, it didn't seem, uh, even though it, it's, at some level, quite an abs- you know, organized in a kind of abstract manner. Um, it didn't come across that way to me anyway. I just, uh, for those listeners who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Ask a Leader this morning. My uh, guests are, uh, my roundtable guests, looking at President Obama's second inauguration are Professors Catherine Tate, the poli-sci professor, and Jennifer Virginia, why do I do this to you? I'm so sorry. It's Virginia. It's the Ginny thing. It's the Virginia, Virginia Jackson Chair in Rhetoric and Communication at UCI School of Humanities and Laura O'Connor, a 
also a scholar in, uh, in poetry at UCI. And we're talking right at this particular point of the hour-long coverage of poet Richard Blanco's uh, delivery at the inauguration. We first heard from Laura O'Connor, and I'd like for Virginia Jackson to take up uh, your impressions of the the well the structure the content the moment your your takeaway well I'm glad that Laura was um, so positive about the poem because <laughs> I'm I have a slightly different frame um, not that I didn't like the poem it's that um, but I I think that the framing of the inaugural poem is a very shaky thing um, uh-huh. it's a, it has as you know a short history only Democratic presidents have had a poem read at the inauguration. Do you have a? Does Catherine have any idea why that is, or does or do you, Virginia, have any idea why there is a this little uh, political divide on that one, that gesture? No, Catherine's saying no, not really. I don't really have an idea of why the political divide. Um, it's not as if every Democratic president does it either, though. Right. I mean, uh, Kennedy did it with Frost in '61, and um, you know, Frost's poem he couldn't read it. Uh, so he recited something else. <laughs> um, it didn't go very well. Jimmy Carter had James Dickey do it in '77. Um, Bill Clinton had two. He had at both his inaugurations, right. as Obama did. Um, he had Maya Angelou in '93 um, and Miller Williams in '97. And then, um, as we know, Obama's first inauguration, Elizabeth Alexander read, and now Richard Blanco. Um, so the history of the inaugural poem is not a long history, and it's not a very stable history. And I think that the, the uh, I mean, I work on American poetry in public, and I think it's hard to make poetry work in public, um, on public occasions. And this poem was addressed in the context, as we said before, of all these other forms of address, um, the Everett Williams inaugural, inaugural prayer, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is a particularly kind of 19th century address, the speech itself, James Taylor, of course, and Kelly Clarkson, um, and then finally Beyonce. And I think Blanco paled. And I do think that people have a hard time listening to poetry. The poem, as Laura said, is also very textual. It's very, it is Whitmanian, actually puns on a Whitman title, Yours and Mine Today. Ah. And, um, and it is it is in these kind of paragraphs or Whitmanian long lines, although I've seen it now in blog posts and things delineated in very, very different ways. Um, so it's a kind of textual poem, but it's performed, uh, you know, for people to listen to. And you can see on the faces of the people listening that they're wandering a little bit. Um, it's been criticized as part already, you know, in the poetry world as very much, even though Blanco himself is not an academic, He's, you know, part of official verse culture. It's a very lyric poem. It's not very avant-garde, et cetera. Um, but I do think that the problem is not the poem itself, but the structure of uh, a poetic address in the context of this kind of public occasion. There's a felt need for it. Some people are calling it a middle ground need. I actually disagree with that. What do you think? Um, that there's not the need? Oh, there's uh, that. I disagree that 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 the need is middle brow. Oh, middle brow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, I don't know what I think about the need. I'm all for the performance of poetry in public, but um, it is uh, it's hard to do um, in the 21st century. 
Well, he did talk about that in some interview about having sort of the intimacy of of much poetry and and bringing it to I don't know we can say upward of almost not a billion watching, but you know it could have right, been close right, to a billion right. people. So that that is a that's a setup, a structural setup for well, sure. Well, the poem makes a lot of gestures toward collective address, of course, as Laura was yes. saying from the very beginning. Um, but it also, I think. Uh, makes uh, gestures toward a, a sort of intimate readerly address, which is what Whitman did. Whitman never read his poetry in public, only Ca- Oh, Captain, My Captain, yeah. which he recited in his speeches about Lincoln. Catherine? I just wanted to say this was very interesting. I, um, you know, think of the, this, the poems as a, a symbol, symbolic gesture to uh, communities that are within the Democratic party. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, most of my work is trying to say that these symbols really do have an impact and are substantive as well as symbolic. So, you know, whether the speech, whether the poem was a success or not, the visibility of a um, Hispanic gay man, um, you know, so large on the podium with the president, I think is going to have real important political value for the mm. Democratic Party. Um, and, and I might just quickly add, though, because uh, I, I did do see some of this on screen, is that the, the, the camera could sweep. You have Kelly Clarkson and Richard Blanco in the same frame, and I thought, okay, there, <laughs> that, there, is, there is a bunch of paragraphs about uh, inclusivity and bridges and that kind of thing. I don't think you'll, I don't know when we'll ever see those two in a frame like that again. The appeal to, to the young, again, you know, the strategists were very um, forward thinking about who they wanted to, you know, talk to, um, and they're really reaching out to young voters and to, you know, um, the gay and lesbian community and to um, uh, not just the, you know, civil rights uh, and the racially liberal whites um, who, you know, support um, Obama. Okay. Okay. So um, then... Uh, well, there there were some. I don't know if, if anybody wanted any passages. Now we've already talked about the. Um, the there was a reference to the the yellow, um, the pencil yellow school buses, the um, and the uh, the twenty empty chairs. And I know he. I guess he he provided. He was he was, con- he was conscripted to present a piece. He gave I guess three pieces, and uh, this one was selected. And I guess I don't. We don't know when he started writing, but uh, he was. If there was. There are these many topical references, and as well as sort of long. One thing I was waiting, and it was a lost opportunity. I thought in his poem, and you can all beat me down for trying to be quaint about this, and and um, uh, uh, ish here. But I missed an Arabic uh, greeting in the greetings that he put in his paragraph about this. Um, here the doors open for every. For each other all day, saying hello, shalom, bueno giorno, and all that, and I, I think a salam would have been a good idea. Yeah, was everybody waiting for that too? Um, well, it didn't. The line doesn't claim to have all languages in it. Well, we, we, it's pretty. It's going. It's got every corner of the globe, but well, I guess there's not an Asian reference in there. Well, mm-hmm. namaste, namaste is Asian. So, um, but anyway, I just thought, you know, with, if we're going to be topical. And we're going to be for all time. I, I, anyway, I just thought, I kept waiting for him to say that, and then he moved on, and that, that was my sort of, <gasps> what? 
what that was mm. an opportunity loss. But anyway, if that's if I'm being quaint, you can all tell me, and we move into the next uh, uh, stanza that anybody would like yeah. to. Well, to I don't think I I agree. I think it would have been better had he got that in there. But I also think it was important that he made that um, multilingual move. Yes, at all, um, and uh, it was also a good way of. You know, bringing in, you know, he had the sky, he had the ground, and he had the air, um, and he kind of worked a bit, um, you know, on that trope or, or metaphor of air and breathing and speech, um, kind of trying to connect the, uh, you know, the, the nation space, um, the kind of geographical terrain of the U.S. Um, with the people who inhabit it. Um, so I thought that was a good move, um, and I agree it would have been better um but i think also he would have needed more asian i mean and then it becomes a lot necessarily yeah i think he could have put in um a few more um briefings okay anybody else want to virginia no i really don't i think that I, i you know i think that the entire structure of the poem and the fact that it exists in the program is itself an instance of, you know, the instability and in the relationship between collective mm-hmm. and personal ah. address. So I just think that's a symptom. Okay. Fine. Fine. Well, um, let's see here. Uh, his, the reference to his mother, that was, I guess, as, his, as intimate as he would allow himself. And, and we, we, you know, we've heard a little bit about that in some of the the send up to the presentation, but the the reference to um, his mother, uh, you know, the, at the end of what we're talking about, the every language spoken and uh, what she was, and the the kind of toiling that her, his parents did so that he could himself have what he has now is um, that I guess that's again I, I, it fit in with the whole motif of of the the older guard handing it off to the to the the newer generation. So it's a, it was a good binder for. But I think there was also, I mean, clearly a represent self representation. Yes, Catherine was saying of of um, his working class background. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, the line is, "Or ring up groceries as my mother did for twenty years, so right. I could write this poem." Exactly. Exactly. So um, now we uh, we have uh, but a, a portion of the show remaining to uh, take up. Whether uh, we what refrains each and every one of you heard in Obama's actual inaugural address. Now, one of you mentioned that you thought it was it was a short one, but I think by by uh, it's a, by a tradition or of some kind of necessity, it, they are traditionally shorter the uh, mm-hmm. second inaugural address. And I don't know if Catherine wants to talk about what that has to do. So uh, I have um, I've taken out some sections. I heard a "We the People" refrain after him opening with the uh, Declaration of Independence. And I don't know if uh, the the uh, poetry uh, professionals here in our roundtable would like to uh, talk about that um, refrain, among others. Jennifer? Um, Virginia. Good <laughs> gosh. That's okay. No, it's Miss um, Jackson uh, to me. I think that, um, I mean, that's a, I, I don't know that I would call it a, you know, part of verse structure, I think that that repetition, um, the repetition of phrases is very much an oratorical technique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Obama often uses it well. There was, of course, also the 
uh, you know, the kind of historical gesture and invocation, the through blood drawn by lash and blood drawn by sword. And that, that I think, is, you know, it, there are a number of oratorical techniques, including the repetition of, yeah, I, I see what you mean, a, a sort of refrain, but... I don't. I don't think I would call it a poetic refrain exactly. I mean, I would say that it's very much the structure of that kind of oratorical address. Catherine? I would. I would say that it was important that um, President Obama, you know, drape himself uh, in with this kind of language, the founding fathers' yeah. uh, language, because you know, just even today, there's still a set of Americans who, you know think that he was unconstitutionally unfit to be president because of the birther beliefs and this stained his his first four years um and you know it seems his approval rating has now gone up um and you know he's got majority support in the american um among um, um in the in the public but again you know this i think this is an opportunity for him to declare himself a uh, citizen of the United States with the same vision of the founding fathers and same ideals and the same um, goodwill um, and and fitness to lead. So I think it, I think I think this was in some ways um, a response to um, that he felt necessary to make to you know a subset of Americans who um, you know have really problematic beliefs about you know. Uh, this African-American president. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent point. And I, I heard this morning on a broadcast, there is still the questioning of that birth certificate. That is not has not gone away. It's incredible. So uh, anyone, uh, ladies, Laura? Um, on the way the people? Um, or in, no, any, any aspect. Oh, okay. Uh, but well, that, that I was mean, a, I think the we the people move was um, sort of highlighting how he is you know, representative voice put there by the people and, and so on. And I think that sort of civics lesson, if you like, um, that ran through the, the piece, maybe too often for some people, but um, as teachers, we know often you have to repeat things for yes. them to stick. So um, I, I felt that that was good because he's also, you know, characterized as being aloof and, um, uh, you know, sort of pushing his own agenda. So I think the kind of reminder that I have been put in here because of an agenda that is our agenda, um, it was actually um, very important and gave, kind of gave a certain base note that he um, kept returning to. Um, so, well, you wanted to address other aspects? Absolutely. Um, I can throw out one while you're considering there. I right. I, I really appreciate it. And right, right in the moment, the reference for to Seneca Falls, Selma, and mm-hmm. and yes, St- that was a good one. Stonewall. And so it's sort of like if for those of you who know about this uh, this movement, then you're going to see the next movement mentioned right in the in the same breath as well as the next another movement. It's sort of like we're all linking them all together. It was alliterative. To a certain extent, yeah. and I, I really, I just, and that, and that, this is the first time that something like Stonewall, I think, would ever appear anywhere close to the Capitol Dome like that. And so I mm-hmm. thought it was riveting, and I could, 
folks. It isn't about me, but I could turn to my 15-year-old and I could say, I could start the conversation that Stonewall was something and this is what it was. So it was a, an alliterative, teachable moment for all movements, all in one half breath. Well, he, I, he did that from the beginning of the speech, yes. that kind of historical slide in which, you know, when he began with the Patriots of 1776, mm-hmm. and then he moved very quickly so that the, the end of what felt like that paragraph, uh, the through blood drawn by lash and blood drawn by sword, the, mm-hmm. the passage I was alluding to earlier, um, ends, we noted that no union founded on the principles of liberty and equality could survive half slave and half free. So he slid from 18th century political rhetoric right to the Civil War. Yes. Laura? I, I loved this um, blood by um, lash and sword. I thought that was a very resonant um, moment uh, in the whole speech. Well, I, I could we all think of um, the, the coverage of the um, sanctioned uh, torture in, in uh, pursuing the uh, the 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 terrorist um, the boogeyman of the day here and the um, the the uh, decision with sort of extrajudicial killings in the form of drones that you know this this th- that really is a very um, has a a, a very uh, implied reference there does it not? Well, I would just say um, Claudia that in some ways the the passage about the you know blood by lash is a sort of candor about America's past that just has been missing yeah. for so long so that and I would say even the terrible history we're making today uh, with um, drone strikes and torture um, I think uh, citizens will look back and with the same sort of um, you know realist perspective about you know that the past was sort of a necessary evil that is important in this, um, you know, establishment and maintenance of this, this, the greatness of this nation. So I, I don't think that, that Obama is going to, you know, with his candor about the civil rights past um, or African-American experience uh, being part of his speech, that this is going to somehow... Um, Make other policy. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to raise that specter. And I think there's too many Americans who would sanction, uh, you know, things that, uh, you know, are dividing liberals right now um, so that he's he's safely able to to evade that particular um, policy matter. Well, it sure gives us room for intellectual honesty, though, bringing that up there. Well, again, uh, you know, what we're doing today, you know, when it's revealed in the future, I, again, we'll have to, we'll hopefully have another president who can, you know, talk about it in truthful, uh, with truthful candor. As again, this is, I think, a, a newness that I would argue is based on the fact that this is an African-American president. Okay. And I think that the... Um, Virginia Jackson. That, that um, the, you know, that... The repetition, the anaphora of our journey is not complete until our journey is not complete until our journey is, not, is, is you know that's a that's another Whitmanian sort of strategy at the end that you know was very powerful coming from this African American president who says you know historically he is 
something new, right? Something historic, something, you know, that, uh, you know, he's claiming an historical moment. Our journey is not complete until. Okay, fine. We have um, also, uh, I think there was alluding to, Catherine Tate was talking a bit about, um, let, let's not forget the those that are, are still being crushed by the, uh, the economic conditions, uh, the, the disparities that are opening up, and I did appreciate uh, where uh, the the divide of the let's say the intergenerational haves and the other generational have-nots with the opening. Let's say there's the student debt and there's the Medicare, uh, uh, Social Security payments. That, that the commitments we make to each other through Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, these things do not sap our initiative. They strengthen us. They do not make a nation us a nation of takers they free us to take the risks that make this country great i'm thinking wow that's a maybe just as we could sort of read into that about you know we, we've got that obligation to um to to offer a safety net to the the elders and we have a this sort of imperative to to keep a mind to the um developing our our young people so that they can they can keep contributing to our to our society society here so i you know there's that kind of that bridge there, um, I don't know if there's another bridge that anyone would like to pick up in the, in the oratory here. Laura? Well, I, I would have liked more about poverty um, and redistribution of wealth, in effect. I mean, nothing. More explicit. In, in those terms, but um, that, that the economic issue was the one that I thought was most lacking. Um, you know, not in terms, in sort of the electioneering terms of let's get our economy back on the road and, and create more jobs, but just in terms of a kind of more diagnostic term of um, the obscene disparity between um, the ultra-wealthy and um, the very poor who get left out of the conversation completely, and um, also the struggling uh, lower middle classes. So... To me, that was something I missed and regretted being absent. Catherine, would you like to also bring up anything about disparities since that's... Well, uh, I think it's important that, you know, as a Democratic president that he, you know, um, uh, he takes a stand that he's not going to, you know, reform or modify uh, those those particular programs. Um, but... It has happened. President Clinton, um, you know, ended the entitlement to welfare for mm. poor families, uh, limiting it to five years instead of a lifetime uh, limit for families in need. And so I think, you know, these are just uncertain times. So I don't know, you know, that was a particular line that was, I think, might be just a line. I don't, I don't know what Congress um, ultimately will do to these programs are going to have to raise retirement age for retirees and and that means also raising uh, the retire retirement age for you know Medicare uh, beneficiaries and and these changes are being done um, those are the easy changes but I think again um, you know what other changes will um, emerge um, can be might be as troubling as when Clinton in 1996 ended the entitlement to welfare. So we have uh, modified and, and re limited our commitment to um, 
the protection of, of people in need um, in a dramatic way. And it's not, it's, I don't think he can, with this one line, close the door to that in the future. Well, I, and I just want to say that by raising the, the eligibility for uh, Social Security and Medicare could uh, it, it have a similar impact on uh, African-American demographics if the uh, longevity is shorter, that uh, instead of looking at how Bill Clinton reduced uh, the welfare payments, uh, the eligibility, this is also eligibility for m- most African, many African-American, especially males. So it's uh, there's a parallel here, and it's it's uh, it's. It's a not an inclusive parallel. Um, so, I, but ladies, I must say we're just coming to the end of this. I want to thank you all uh, for giving us this roundtable today. I know my listeners really enjoyed it. I really did it. You've, you've really expanded my thinking and uh, the the depth and the range. And I uh, w- hope that uh, we would be able to do some kind of a roundtable on an I don't know not the state of the union, but in something somewhat similar at another time. I thank you all. That's uh, today. Our roundtable was with Catherine Tate, political science professor at UCI, Virginia Jackson, the chair uh, at rhetoric and uh, poetry there at the um, at UCI School of Humanities, and Laura O'Connor, also a literature professor uh, at the School of Humanities. I want to thank you all very much for being on Ask a Leader today. Take care. Hey, thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you. So that's going to be the end of this uh, particular today program. I wanted to uh, let you know that next week I'm going to have with us the, I'm going, let's see here. I'll be having uh, three school officials from the Irvine Unified School District, a board member, Gavin Huntley-Fenner, assistant principal, Mike Giorgino, and the the. Uh, Parent-Teacher Association President Marlene Vermeer-Campbell covering the safety protocols around Irvine's Unified School District and address the particular catastrophe that was averted last summer when Rainier Reinscheid posed a serious threat to uni high students and staff. The police and the school have done their job and will take stock of how they're doing now uh, with that. My other guest will be Vincent Olivieri, designer, composer, associate with the uh, UCI Claire Trevor Brand School of the Arts uh, on the radio plays that he'll be performing Forming, directing um, with the um, on February one, two, three, the end of next week. So if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, David Walker's box office can set you up. Thanks everybody for listening today. We're going to go out with a, a little jingle. I'm going to say is a, a wink to uh, the GOP in uh, the U.S. of A. The, next up is George Rosales with George Had a Hat. Thanks for joining me all. One Sunday kind of love, a love to last past Saturday night, and I'd like to know it's more than love at first sight.